Hello and welcome to Inside Human Trafficking in Canada, a podcast focused on ending trafficking and upholding children's rights. My name is Dr. Carly Saposnik-Evans, and I'm a human rights advocate based in Winnipeg, Manitoba. I'm recording this podcast on Treaty 1 territory in Manitoba, which is home to the original lands of the Anishinaabeg, Anishinaawak, Dakota Oyate, Denesulin, and Nithahuihak, and located on the beautiful homeland of the Red River Métis. This podcast is brought to you by Youth Troopers for Global Action and the Manitoba Advocate for Children and Youth. You can learn more about us on our websites, ytga.com and manitobaadvocate.ca, which you'll find in the show notes. Today's episode zeroes in on the human trafficking of young people for the purpose of forced marriage. Lawyer Deepa Matu, Executive Director of the Barbara Schleifer Commemorative Clinic, provides examples, signs of this often hidden form of trafficking, and solutions for how we can stop it. As mentioned, Deepa Matu is the Executive Director of the Barbara Schleifer Commemorative Clinic. Previously, she was the clinic's Director of Legal Services, and before joining the Schleifer Clinic, Deepa was the Project Coordinator, Staff Lawyer, and Executive Director at the South Asian Legal Clinic of Ontario. Deepa currently oversees the Schieffer Clinic strategic direction and provides leadership to the legal, counseling, and interpretation departments. She is directly involved in critical projects, including risk assessment of gender-based violence and interdisciplinary case management. Deepa also provides leadership for the clinic's intervention and advocacy work and has appeared before parliamentary committees and United Nations civil society meetings on a wide range of social justice and human rights issues. She has also represented hundreds of clients at multiple tribunals and courts in numerous jurisdictions, including the the Supreme Court of Canada. Deepa is an adjunct professor and visiting faculty at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Law. She's also an adjunct professor at Osgoode Hall Law School, where she is the coordinator of the feminist advocacy program hosted at the Schleifer Clinic. She was the Law Foundation of Ontario's 2017 Community Leadership and Justice Fellow at the University of Toronto. I've known her for many years, connected with her on forced marriage cases, and can attest that she has trained thousands of service providers on how to prevent forced marriages and help young people who are in these situations. Welcome, Deepa, to Inside Human Trafficking in Canada. Thank you, Caroline. Thank you for inviting me um, and, and reading that beautiful bio. I always say that your bio reads really well when you write it yourself. So, so that could be part of the reason that it reads really well. So thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you so much for being here with us, Deepa. Um, As we focus on the issue of human trafficking for the purpose of forced marriage today, I wanted to first start off by talking about how this issue relates to the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, and in particular, how the work that you do intersects with those rights of young people. Absolutely. I, I think it's a really good question to kind of ground us in the fact that, um, all countries, including Canada, who are uh, signatory of various conventions which provide protection to people. Um, There is a commitment that the government makes for providing protection, providing safety and security, and um, right to movement and right to marriage are part of those two protections. Um, So in terms of um, the convention of right to right of child there are a few articles that i can think about and 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 the whole whole notion of the convention as it came to be is to create uh, systems or to encourage uh, i would say countries uh, to create systems to protect children's rights and uh, within that realm uh, a couple of things that come to my mind is about article 3 which speaks to very clearly that all public, administrative, judicial, legal uh, solutions should take care of the best interest of the child. Uh, And what could be more needed in terms of the best interest of the child that a child remains a child, right? That uh, a child is uh, allowed to be a child for their their, um, childhood, while recognizing the fact that the legal guardians, the parents, the people responsible for their safety actually are truly um, safeguarding their interests. Um, 
Another article which I find really relevant for the work that we have been doing around forced marriages is that Article 11, which talks about that state parties shall take measures to combat illicit transfer and non-return of children abroad, which definitely is something that we see a lot in the cases of uh, intersecting situations of human trafficking and forced marriages where children are taken abroad. Um, for for these managers because the jurisdiction abroad might recognize. Although I have to say that uh, more and more state parties are um, creating legislations and uh, delegitimizing these these marriages, but but still we know that a lot of that movement happens because sometimes it is punitive available in the name of culture or or the 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 context of the space. And then the Article 35 that, Carly, you and I were just talking about, which I haven't used in my work a lot, but I think it's really, really important, which speaks about that state parties shall take all appropriate national, bilateral, and multilateral measures to prevent abduction of, sale of, traffic, uh, or trafficking children for any purpose or any form. So that, again, is a very relevant interconnected article. And, and the whole convention is written to protect children's rights. So definitely in the context of um, human trafficking, when it intersects with forced marriages or, or human trafficking happens for the reason of marriage, uh, this convention is really important, along with many other conventions, um, including CEDA, including uh, the, the very or very basic human rights convention. Um, all of them are very relevant for the work we, we do. Absolutely. And and Deepa, as you were speaking, I recalled a case that you and I are both aware of where the young woman, um, when you spoke to her about the situation, which was clearly a forced marriage and involved trafficking, uh, she asked you when you mentioned rights, if she had those. And so what comes to mind as I'm thinking about that right now is, is also Article 39 of the UNCRC, which states you have the right to get help if you've been abused, neglected, or treated badly. And, and just wanting to emphasize to folks, the listeners today, that you have the right to get help if you're in this type of situation. Absolutely. And and I think that that notion of right is is so very relevant for the conversation because it's it's that very basic um, very ba basic notion or ba very basic agency that survivors when they're going through the experience of survivorship they don't know do I have the agency because if you have been um, you have gone through the experiences of being groomed into believing that you don't have a right or you have lived in an environment where you did not have a right, you, it's very hard to then suddenly being told by a service provider, say like myself in that situation, you have a right. And, and the person is like kind of taken aback and be like, really, do I have a right? It's like, yeah, because this is a basic human right for you to say to no uh, or for you to get help. So yeah, no, absolutely, Carly. I, I, I've heard that in that particular situation that we both are aware of and in many other situations where people are kind of surprised when, when um, we talk to them about what are their options. So that, that very, very knowledge of that I have an option is a profound one a lot of times. And so with that in mind, Diva, can you please tell us a little bit more about the work of the Barbara Schleifer Commemorative Clinic and how it aims to end human trafficking for the purpose of forced marriage in particular? For sure. So a couple of things that I would want the listeners today to know about the Barbara Schleifer Commemorative Clinic is that it's a clinic which is named after Barbara Schleifer. Um, and it's one of its kind in, in, the, in, in this side of the um, continent, uh, North America, I would say. Um, the clinic's namesake, Barbara Schleifer, was a lawyer herself. And unfortunately, her life was cut short on the night of her call to the bar. And um, the clinic came together to uh, commemorate her life, commemorate her belief in a feminist space. And we have been in existence over 35 years now. It's our 36th year of uh, providing services. Uh, we provide services in legal, counseling and um, housing, um, sexual assault, sexual harassment, criminalization of women, um, as well as interpretation services. So those are the, the, the scope of services. There's a lot of other developmental projects that the clinic also has around risk assessment, for example. They're also looking at how, the case management aspect of it within the realm of 
of gender-based violence. Liver Clinic serves women, non-binary and gender diverse people in the city of Toronto, as well as greater Toronto area. Uh, in some cases, uh, people from Ontario, Canada, and abroad. Uh, depending on the service, it could be folks from anywhere of all these places. In the case of human trafficking per se, we have been uh, working on human trafficking project for close to six years now, funded by Canadian Women Foundation. And we have been looking at the notion of um, and, and developing the notion of economic coercion, how economic coercion actually creates the environment of trafficking and what does that mean? And creating um, some kind of language to support the survivors who find the criminalizing aspect of human trafficking really problematic to interact with the justice system to get protections that they need. So there has been a lot of emphasis in the work that we have been doing to talk about the, the coercion aspect of and the course of control that goes into these situations. And uh, rather than looking at how do we always depend on the justice system, how do we depend on the systems, uh, broadly speaking, of protection? So that's, that's broadly speaking, our work. Um, uh, I know that I can't um, capture everything. So I'm trying to think, did I miss something from the clinic's work? Because there is so much more exciting work. We run groups, we run youth groups. Uh, so there's a lot of that exciting work that happens. Uh, and there is a lot of education. So you heard during my bio, for example, that we run a feminist advocacy course at the clinic. So that's that's another exciting aspect of the clinic. It's a teaching clinic. Uh, which receives students every year, and uh, there's a lot of a lot of great energy that comes with it. A lot of mutual learning that happens with that as well. Thank you, Deepa. We know that Canada is a source transit and destination country for human trafficking for the purpose of forced marriage, and and you and I we worked on cases, you know, even involving the airport, for example, and and uh, youth, young women uh, who are about to be trafficked for that purpose. What do people need to understand about the trafficking of children, youth, and young adults for the purpose of forced marriage in Canada? Um, so a couple of things I think which people need to be aware of is that number one, it happens here. Like I think that's the biggest struggle because a lot of times it feels um, that when I'm interacting with communities and I'm interacting with uh, with um, with young people, they they sometimes look at us and and be like, in the education space, they are like, does it happen here, right? Like that's like the biggest question that I I get um, because these issues are talked about in the context of uh, that's something that happens in third world countries or something that happens in, in countries which lack resources. So I think that's the most important thing to probably kind of maybe uh, talk about, that it happens here and it happens for various reasons. And forced marriages is one of them. Labor is another one, which is less talked about. And sometimes these all uh, situations intersect, right? right? So for example, I'll give you an example of a case that I uh, happened to be uh, to, to witness where um, the, the survivor was brought in um, for, through the forced marriage. And so forced marriage is used as a vehicle. I think that's another important thing for us to kind of clarify for people. Like, what is this intersect about? How does, how does trafficking and forced marriages intersect? Is because the marriage in itself, so the contract of marriage, um, is used as the vehicle for trafficking. Because if you are trying to bring in someone into the country or take someone out of the country or moving them within the country, the, the marriage is such a great way of protecting that movement because suddenly there is a label on it. And, and, and underneath that label, that movement becomes a lot more, um, uh, like again, there's a lot, lot, lot more punity and a lot more protection now for the perpetrator. So, so that's how, that's how these two issues intersect. But going back to what I was talking about, that what is really important to remember is that all of these situations can intersect. And how do they intersect is that I saw a case where uh, a woman is brought in under the pretext of marriage, but she was brought in with the very purpose of uh, 
of supporting a business that was being run here. She lived on, in, she was, she was first brought in under trafficked conditions. She was living under trafficked conditions with complete restriction on the movement, complete restri restriction on who she could uh, communicate with and not communicate with. And, and suddenly you have a situation where there is not one form of trafficking, but all forms of trafficking actually in one particular situation. Similarly, I think another third most important thing I would say to be I would ask people to reflect on and think about it, that when a situation of forced marriage happens, whether there is movement or whether there is no movement, marriage, which is forced in nature, will always proceed with, followed up with, a situation of sexual violence. And there is, a, there is that lack of understanding for people that sexual violence is very much part of these situations and, and very much part of this experience that sometimes is not uh, given enough attention uh, in the context of when we are advocating for resources for sexual violence. We kind of miss this population because uh, we, we don't understand how they all are complex and layered and intersecting situations. Thank you. That's such a good point. And in, in working with individuals who have been trafficked, I've heard from them that we have very similar experiences, whether it's sexual exploitation from multiple perpetrators or through that person who was allegedly their husband, but not in fact, because they never had the ability to provide their full and free consent. Um, and so just backing up a little bit for folks, um, can you help unpack, I think there still is a lot of confusion around the difference between a forced marriage and an arranged marriage. Um, can you help them understand uh, what what makes a case a forced marriage versus an arranged marriage? Absolutely. And, and I know that the confusion exists because of a couple of reasons. I'm, I might want, if, if you allow me, I might want to comment on why that confusion persists till today. Um, some of it is in, in the bias and the discrimination that exists in people's mind uh, looking at the quintessential survivor of a forced marriage, right? They look at her, she looks brown or she is Muslim or she comes from um, a, a, a specific uh, ethno-specific group um, or uh, some kind of um, a, trad a traditional background uh, which is orthodox and, and the quick interpretation of all of those identity markers is, oh, this must be something which her community practices and therefore it must be an arranged marriage. So that's like the quick uh, one minute, um, you know, pre preamble of why people still conflate the two, because people uh, have a, a bias and a, a discriminatory lens with which they are viewing these cases. That's like my, my starting point to it. Uh, but if, if we go into the minutiae of fine line differentiating between what's an arranged marriage and forced marriage, I think the consent piece that you just talked about, Kali, is the key, right? That there is a consent in a, in a, in a arranged marriage situation which lacks in a forced marriage situation. Now, saying that I'm not naive to say that every arranged marriage has full enthusiastic consent of the people getting married because sometimes you're reluctant as you are when you're dating someone or as you are when your friend says, why don't you sign up for this app? Uh, it seems this app is working really well, right? So, so sometimes you start and sign up for a process of meeting someone with reluctance. So are you fully consenting? Maybe not. You're still testing the waters. You're still thinking about it. And then you know, on the process of meeting, connecting, sometimes those arranged marriage situations might become a full-on, well-intended, enthusiastic, excited about the marriage um, kind of a marriage. And unfortunately, sometimes in those very situations, people might feel pressured uh, and might feel that there is entry of many other uh, many other factors that is happening and I'm not really necessarily into this anymore, but I'm being asked because now the family knows, now the arrangement has happened, now, um, and now this is your responsibility because you are the only reason because of whom you will be able to get out of the country and you'll make everyone else's pathway to get into another safe zone. So there could be uh, many multiple factors. So. There is no clear cut, uh, I would say, uh, like there is not a clear cut line where I can, where we can draw and say, 
they, this point onwards, it becomes a forced marriage. And this point onwards, it becomes purely a, a great, enthusiastic, arranged marriage. Marriage as a construct in itself has a problem. Like, we all know that, right? Like, we know that marriage comes with the baggage of um, this expectation that you will live together, you'll take your mortgage together, you'll own your property together. And all of that in itself is such a complex, um, complex institution. And there is so much commentary about that at this time and age and what gender roles are expected to be and what happens to the to to a lot of uh, women or women identifying folks in those relationships. So from that context, I find that we we can't necessarily say that every arranged marriage is an enthusiastic marriage and every forced marriage has everything which, uh, you know, a picture of a gruesome violence is there. Sometimes it's not uh, it, it, it's not that kind of violence that your eyes can see. And sometimes in an arranged marriage, it's not necessarily all hunky-dory. There is a lot of gray in, in, in arranged marriages as, as well. But arranged marriages, by notion of it, are not necessarily forced marriages. And we should understand that because it's very similar. And this, and this time and age, I find it so easy to explain because people sign up on apps now. So instead of signing up with an app, you're signing up with your family. Mm -hmm. So instead of your your app doing the background test and you depending on the AI to look at what is the credit score of this person, what kind of jobs have been they doing. So, you know, I would go on LinkedIn, I would go on Facebook, I would go on their Instagram, I would try to get a sense of who this person is. You're actually checking all of that with the family members. And their family members are the intel, they are the AI, and they are gathering the logarithm that you need to understand who this person is. So that's the similarity. The interaction piece can be also very similar. And there could be a lot of uh, similar experiences before people say yes or a no. Um, but um, saying that, as in an in a app situation, you can meet a freak and, and it can go all wrong. In the arranged marriage, also that can happen, and and none of these are perfect institutions. If you ask mm -hmm. me, um, thank you so much. And so I think, yeah, we need to understand absolutely there is this continuum, and each case is unique and distinct. Um, but we, we there are indicators that we can look for, right, to detect when it meets that threshold of a first marriage and trafficking involved. Um, considering the important information you just shared. What myths about child and youth trafficking in particular still need to be debunked? I'm thinking, for example, in schools right now, we're, we're aware of situations um, and in particular also involving young men, right? Uh, so what, what are some of the myths that, that folks need to understand about this issue? Um, a few. So the first one is that it happens to all these specific uh, cultures. So that's a big one. Uh, it doesn't. That, I think that's really important one to remember. It doesn't happen to, like, you know, people who are survivors or people who are surviving situations of uh, familial violence, which can lead to trafficking and human traffic, uh, human trafficking and um, intersecting with forced marriages, or people who are experiencing uh, peer violence or organized crime violence uh, are, are, not, are not people who would are different than you and me, right? So it, it, I think that's the first most important that um, these are unfortunate situations that can happen to anyone. So don't take anyone's um, don't take anyone's disclosure, whether it's big or small, lightly, because um, a disclosure of any kind of course of control, any kind of coercion, uh, someone says that I have I'm, I'm, there's there's uh, I I have a curfew. On my my going and coming, someone shares with you that I um, I have this impending travel that I don't understand where I'm going, or I have this uh, boyfriend, or, a, or I have a I have this uh, girlfriend who no one has ever seen, but is there in their lives, and 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 they all, will only meet them at a time and no one else is able to see them, uh, or doesn't meet with anyone or someone is missing their school too much. So all of those indicators can be for anyone uh, from any background, any cultural context. So that's like one, one of the most important uh, thing to remember because people have this myth that it only happens to certain people. So the second myth that I see quite a bit is that um, 
Oh, it happens to it happens to vulnerable people only. It happens to people who are not very educated or people who don't have a lot of money. So that's another big one, which I would say do not believe in that myth. It can happen to people from all different class uh, background. Definitely, poverty has its own phase of uh, of challenges, and it's a structural form of violence, absolutely, and it has a role in, to play. Uh, as has race and as has uh, has um, you know gender identity as we were talking about earlier but that doesn't mean that you should discount um uh, any indication of risk from someone from from a wealthy background because it can happen to to people from that from very affluent background and actually in people from affluent background we a lot of times see that it is happening with the intention of wealth creation it's in with the intention of wealth protection as well uh, so so that's another aspect uh, that i think is is a great myth that people need to remember and another one which carly you were alluding to is that it only happens to to young women that's not really true it can happen to young men it can happen to folks from lgbtqs2 community so no one is is um, necessarily um a so-called soft target. Uh, the reasons would be different why people would be, uh, why perpetrator would be forcing them into marriage. Uh, obviously, the intention and the reasons behind are different, but it can happen to to anyone from any gender. So don't don't necessarily um, again trivialize an experience of a of a man uh, if they come forward and say that they are experiencing something like that. I hope I've given you. Uh, the broad stroke ones, <laughs> when we do like our, one, our, our long training, we have like, I don't know, seven or eight different slides on myths, but I can think of these top three. Thank you so much, Deepa. I know that in doing this work, you've had to be creative. And I recall one situation, even uh, hearing about this, where you encouraged a, a young woman to put a spoon like on her person so that it, the metal detectors would go off at the airport and she would um, have an opportunity to to tell security what was going on so she wouldn't be put on an airplane. Um, what other lessons have you learned about how we can move forward in a good way? Obviously, that's not really you know a great situation. That's a very last minute desperate one. Um, what over the you know past years that you've been doing this work have you learned around how we can move forward in a good way? And to be honest with you, that was, that's the one that I think someone uh, from from UK had had talked about at a conference that ULI attended and and. And there could be some real serious downside to to doing something that desperate because you can get involved on the wrong side of the security measures. If you're a person of color or if you're a black person or, or a racialized person, you might get targeted even further at the security um, because they might think that you are actually carrying something dangerous. So yeah, so so no, we, me and Carly would not necessarily ask you to do any of those things, but there are other things that could be done and and, and there are some other safety measures. So, um, so from the Foreign Affairs Ministry, there is a global a number, there is a, it's, it's actually a, uh, not only a number that you can call from within Canada, you can call from anywhere. Uh, there's an SOS number that's available that uh, people can keep handy. Um, and uh, and we will make sure that you get it at the um, Hopefully, at the end of the podcast, we will make sure that you have those numbers available uh, with you. You can also email, um, uh, and I can give you the email I remember from top of my head, sos at international.gc.ca. You can email them if you're stuck abroad or if you are uh, have an impending travel that's looming over your head and you are fearful that this travel is the one whereby you might uh, get stuck somewhere uh, dangerous and or you don't want to be part of the travel, but it's happening. Uh, another really great tool that's available uh, from Foreign Affairs is to register yourself before you travel. And I would recommend this to be utilized as a resource, not only in the case of forced marriage, but any travel, I think. If you're traveling abroad for, and you're, you're a Canadian passport holder, that registration is a good practice to do. Whether it's a forced marriage or a tsunami, it can be a helpful tool. Um, another thing that I would say is important is to keep your passport and your paperwork handy. Thank you. Yeah, and I know in working with different youth and young people over the course of 
a few years, I've also suggested that they give a copy of those documents to someone they trust that, that does not live with them just in case one of these situations does arise. Is that something that you would also endorse? Yes, uh, Carly, I think uh, keeping your, your passport and your birth certificate and, and, and your identity documents handy is a great thing. But I know that some people who are living under these hard conditions, they might not have all the documents available to them all the time. So at least keeping the copy safe with yourself, emailing it to yourself or uh, emailing it to, um, you know, taking a picture. So these days we all have these you know, cameras uh, on our phone. So taking a picture of it and making sure that you can get access to it uh, quickly, whether it's with a, with a social worker, if you're working with or a friend so that you can actually access the documents when you need them is, is the key here. Um, I wouldn't necessarily recommend uh, too strongly to take the passport and hand it over to someone unless and until it's someone who is um, is to be trusted completely, whether it may be a social worker or a lawyer. Uh, I wouldn't necessarily take your original documents and give it to someone who uh, might themselves be in a bit of a precarious situation. So be very careful with that. Um, and some of the other simple tips, I think, which is important for young people to remember is that uh, if, if you are going to be traveling and if you are already fearful, making sure that someone um, among your friends, someone who is your teacher or your social worker or, or um, in, in a little bit of, um, you know, um, um, authority or maturity, either or, like doesn't matter. I don't think people only in authority are responsible people, but someone who is mature enough and responsible enough that they would seek supports for you if you are stuck. Um, that's another really important thing to do, like disclose where you feel safe to disclose um, that you are fearful of this might happen and nothing might happen. In some cases, I have had people tell me that they're fearful, but they come back safely, no glitch, no problem. But if you are fearful um, or if you're finding something odd and off and your, your own radar is telling you this is not right, uh, and I did give you some of those indicators. You know, you're, tra you're, tra you're planning a travel with someone who's not wanting to meet with your family. We are planning a travel with someone who is not comfortable coming forward and connecting with your friends and be transparent about who they are, where they live, but who their family members are. If you are communicating with a character who is not necessarily completely transparent, then carrying a doubt is the right thing to do. Uh, and and again, I know that um, you know you you sometimes feel that I can't be looking at everyone with with uh, with doubt, but uh, carrying a little bit of that um, that gut, as as we call it, or a sixth sense, is important. And if you have a character who you're not completely clear on who they are, what their background is, it's really important that you you definitely. Uh, talk to some people you trust. And if it's familial violence and it's extended family member or someone from your community or your village, uh, again, make making sure that you have all the information on them as much as possible um, in both cases. Like what, what is their name? What is your, their date of birth? Well, what is the, their origin of uh, or originating place? If you have seen their passport, <clears throat> where were they born? All of those factors, uh, all of that information can be really important. Um, another one which sometimes we don't pay enough attention to or we don't think about uh, as much is um, thinking about what resources do you have with you. Um, so a cell phone, if you have a smart cell phone, for example, it might not work um, in another country uh, because you know not every country has the same kind of uh, um, cell phone towers and stuff. But in my experience, the text messaging still works in a lot of spaces. So knowing that is really, really relevant. Um, you, uh, you, If you have a, a cell phone, if you have a tablet, um, you know, keeping your, your GPS, are you keeping your GPS on or are you keeping your GPS off? If you're trying to flee from the situation of violence, maybe the best idea is to keep it off because you don't want your perpetrator to be tracking you. Um, do you want to change your cell phone? So they, those are some of the, the tips that I would see, think about to keep handy. And there is a lot more information available and we'll, we'll share with you some of those 
um, those links as well. But um, but making sure that you have like basic safety planning in place. And Deepa, what keeps you motivated to do this difficult work? Um, Darlene, in terms of what keeps me motivated is, I want to say, um, people like yourself. Um, and the work that uh, is still happening and, you know, you're persevering and, you know, you're keeping the, the conversation alive. Um, it's people like yourself, Faye Farah Khan, um, I feel like the, the the community of activists who are keeping the focus on the issue of the forced marriages, uh, and in your case, your your focus area is forced marriages and human trafficking, um, you're, you're keeping the conversation going. Unfortunately, as we know, once the Zero Tolerance for Barbaric Cultural Practices Act happened, which was assented in 2015, um, we haven't had a lot of resources allocated to this particular area. And, and that was our fear when we were all coming together uh, to voice our concerns and, and dissent, dissenting voices. And, um, and, and in spite of that, uh, you know, I feel honored to be taking my name in the same breath that, you know, folks like myself and you all, we have been still taking the opportunity and not letting the, 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 the conversation drop uh, gives me hope that one day we will see the change that we want to see. That's Beautifully said. And and on that theme of change and moving forward in a good way, what key message do you want listeners to take away from this conversation? Um, a couple of key messages. One that is really, really important is to keep keep your, um, your thinking open and your bias checked. Because unfortunately, um, what I have seen over the years is that uh, people's own bias and people's own um, understanding or lack of understanding comes in the way of uh, creating the right uh, solutions or offering the right solutions to, to people uh, who are surviving. Uh, so checking your bias, I think, is the most important thing. Um, and and the, the follow-up very related issue is don't let, uh, don't let your bias go unnoticed by yourself. So some people take the stance that I'm not biased, right? I have, I have no bias and, you know, but that stance doesn't help because then you're letting your subconscious still act uh, in a biased way and you're, you're trying to suppress that feeling. Let that bias come up, notice it, acknowledge it, um, and ask yourself the question, why am I thinking like this? Why am I already making um judgment call on what is happening in this situation. So if you will take those steps, you would probably make the decisions based on what the person in front of you wants uh, instead of you assuming what they need. And that's where the biggest disconnect is when we start assuming this is what they would need uh, rather than deciphering what do, what do they really want, what the solutions are they looking for? Uh, let them be. Let them be your guide, rather than you trying to be their savior. Absolutely, and and so in that sense, each of us have a really important role to play, and it starts with self reflection and around checking that bias piece. In addition to that, uh, what is one concrete thing that we can all do today to help end human trafficking? Um, I think. One concrete thing that we all can do is engage in the conversation, right? And if, whether directly or indirectly. And um, one simple one that I always say to people is that know what the legal system has to offer. Uh, know what uh, are the gaps uh, and where the misunderstandings are. Starting from reading the literature is maybe the starting point, could be the starting point. I know that we don't have time for reading literature. Maybe sign up for for um, the, the news feed on uh, forced marriages and human trafficking. See what shows up in your news feed. Uh, so, yeah, getting getting yourself introduced and educated is the key. And, and be open to hearing people's experiences when you happen to have the opportunity to listen because you never know when someone is telling you something what uh 
where you can be a conduit for connecting them to a referral or connecting them to a resource. So, so uh, when a survivor is talking to you, just pay attention to what they're saying. Uh, you don't have to jump and do anything right away. Uh, just, just listen to them. Just listen. Well said. What gives you hope for the future? Um, I think what gives me hope for the future, Parley, you would probably find this a bit um, amusing, is people like you, right? People like you who are not giving up on the issue of forced marriages and who are being, who are persevering. Because we know that when um, the Zero Tolerance of Barbary Culture Practices Act came in 2015-2016, after that, the resources for this particular area, especially forced marriages, I wouldn't say so much for the intersecting issue with the human trafficking, but those cases we still see there are resources available, um, limited, but there are there. But for the forced marriage topic itself, we have seen a, a, a big, huge drop in the resources. And it's like people like yourself um, and other fabulous people in the movement who are persevering and who are keeping the, the issue alive and conversation alive. So um, Faye Farah Day is another example that I can share with you. Farah Khan is another example I can share with you. So they, these are the names of the people. Um, and I feel honored to be taking my name in the same breath. We are not giving up. We are saying that the issue is still alive and we all need to be voicing it and talking about it when we get the opportunity. And I think that gives me hope that, um, that, that at one day we will have all the resources in place to uh, give due importance and due attention to this issue. Thank you, Deepa. I look up to you on this issue. I would argue you're the subject matter expert right now in Canada on this. And I do, as well as yourself, I, I believe in incremental change. And so those those small incremental successes over time, they do have an impact. Uh, so thank you for that. Uh, the other piece that gives me hope is also the youth that we work with. On that note, uh, we have received some questions from youth uh, for you today. And so I'm going to dive right in to ask them now. Uh, number one, how is forced marriage not detected by authorities? especially if the victim looks young or shows signs of being in danger? So first of all, I would say that I completely agree with you. The youth and young people and, and young people's ingenuity, ingenuity in this area is, is definitely something that gives me hope as well. They are so creative and innovative. Um, why do authority not recognize? Is the lack of education. It's lack of attention, the very attention that I was talking about. That my, my hope is that if we we keep on, um, you know, taking the opportunity to talk about it and not drop the issue someday, one day, but things will improve. But there is lack of understanding from the authority. There is lack of, and I say this with a full confidence that stop any police officer and ask them a simple question: Do you know in the criminal code under what section can you? Uh, arrest someone for forced marriages, and I, I can tell you they would probably not know. That's the lack. That's the level of lack of understanding I'm talking about. Um, that we we haven't done enough education in the area. We haven't done enough uh, public awareness in the area, and and that's why it is not on people's radar. And authority um, are people. At the end of the day, it's made of people. Uh, so so that's that's. I think what I would say is the problem. Thank you. And and I think as well, the problem's not new, right? We know that this is a longstanding piece. And, and even we've talked about how there are cases that took place historically in Canada, right? In the form of shotgun weddings, or even now there's newer research looking at how residential school authorities perpetrated forced marriages. And so this is a really understudied, like misunderstood yes, area. Yeah. Yeah. The second question that we received uh, from a youth is, has there been a lot of legal action taken against perpetrators of forced marriage in Canada? And are most cases successful in achieving justice for the victim? If not, how come? So this, again, a very, very, very good question because um, the inquisitive 
ness there is to understand the curiosity is that are our authorities really taking any action and is there a lot of legal um legal relief and unfortunately not uh we haven't have we haven't had many many um legal cases come forward um in the criminal justice system at all uh we do have uh, a great deal of repository of cases that are within the refugee uh realm or um protection realm from from the the immigration system so there is a little bit more example there um and in terms of success or or justice uh i think we would need another podcast to talk about what is the sense of justice right so uh, one of the areas of my work these days has been the trauma informed uh, practice and trauma informed practice tells me that our sense of justice that sometimes we believe um is is really just is not necessarily the outcome or the justice that our survivors are looking for so there is a bit of misunderstanding on our part of what really justice is because are we talking about substantive procedural justice or are we really talking about the justice that a, a survivor would experience to feel the relief of having gone through an experience and and at times there is a disconnect there Uh, so i wouldn't necessarily say there is a lot of justice for survivors in this area of experience because when your choices are limited to um no i don't want to get married but my option is to get my father arrested i say that the sense of justice is a very very, very competent one because survivor wants the violence to stop but they don't necessarily want to harm their family members if they are the perpetrators so they are in a very tough space so i find that the sense of justice is really um a big question uh, to to think about and and dive into and is very limited in these in these areas yes i fully agree and humbly suggest that we need to do more more work consulting with lived experience leaders on this this issue um the last question is a really concrete one and i think it's a really appropriate one for us to end on here if a young victim is trapped in a forced marriage and i as a teenager know about it what can i do to assist and ensure the safety of, of both of us um a very good question and i'm glad that you asked this question i i think whoever has asked this question brilliant brilliant question um so in the in the talk earlier i had talked about listening right like that's the basic um skill that i want all of us to kind of keep intact when we are interacting with a survivor so so listening is really important um and 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 not offering solutions that might feel suitable to you is another really important thing you have to ask for the solutions that the person believes that they, they can safely access because they are the best uh they are the best uh or they are the experts of their own uh own experience they are the experts what they are living through and every lived experience survivor i say is an expert in surviving what they are surviving because they uh, have been managing that situation so they know who are the cast of characters involved they know what how they have been navigating the space so talk to them what have they been doing understand that and ask them what they want you to do instead of you offering support ask them what they need from you in some cases they might just want you to hold the information for them and not do anything at this point because they're not ready in other cases they might want you to be a conduit and they might want you to take this information to someone else so that there is more people who are aware now and they can watch out for their safety so every situation and every case is very different but the basic rule of uh try in trying to support do no harm that's like the baseline that i always tell people if you will operate with do no harm strategy you will make sure that you are not crossing the line uh for them for yourself i would always say if you're a young person get support whether that support is in your uh in your guardians and your parents if they are supportive talk to them 
if it is a teacher, if it's a an, it's a mature uh, uh, a senior in your university college in your school, talk to them. If it's a social worker, you can speak to talk to them. Try to get support, uh, but also at the same time um, honor the story that you have been uh, informed of. Um, your safety is really really important uh, in navigating this. You are not a professional, say like myself, who has a who has a clinic behind me and workers and other social workers and housing workers and lawyers. You are interacting with this as an individual. So you need to make sure that you remain safe. Do not interact with the perpetrators at any given point. Uh, because that might not be ever safe. It might seem like the right thing to do, but please do not do it. Um, do not try to mediate. Um, that's another thing that I've said again and again um, to young people and service providers both, that these situations are not where you jump to mediation and conflict resolution because it can be highly dangerous. Um, but uh, but listen, listening is where you start, right? And uh, and and as I said, they you're talking to an expert who's surviving the situation. So try to remember that in, in your conversation. I hope these steps would help. Uh, it's very complex, um, but um, but I think as young people, we are also very resilient. And um, when I was young, I should say I was very resilient. And I know that if my friends were navigating a situation, I was a great listener. I was a great support just by being there for them so so good luck and thank you for asking the question thank you so very much deepa for sharing your knowledge and expertise with us today thank you carly what an informative conversation with deepa today if you liked what you heard please remember to follow inside human trafficking in canada on your favorite podcasting platforms so that you don't miss a podcast We'd also love if you left a great review for our podcast, which will help other people find it online. Inside Human Trafficking in Canada is brought to you by Youth Troopers for Global Action and the Manitoba Advocate for Children and Youth. You can learn more about both of our organizations on our websites, which you can find in the show notes. Thank you again to today's guest, Deepa Natu, Executive Director of the Schleifer Clinic. Special thanks also go to Perfect Software, Inc., for providing financial support to YTGA to develop this podcast series, to our producers, Livin Mohammed, Amri Gawat Stevenson, and Anthula Buroleas from YTGA, and Jessica Patello Urbanski from AC, to Darshan Dorka from Next Danza for audio mixing, and to Daniel Chavez from CC Puede Productions for our studio setup in Winnipeg. If you want to find us on social media, both YTGA and Macy are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find our handles in the show notes. We'll be using the hashtag Inside Human Trafficking to share podcast information online, so feel free to follow that hashtag as well as and join the conversation. We'd love to hear what you think of the podcast and if you have questions about human trafficking that you'd like us to ask future guests. You can follow Deepa and her team on Facebook at Barbara Schleifer Commemorative Clinic, on Twitter at Schleifer Clinic, and on Instagram at Schleifer Clinic, and we'll be sure to post the information she shared about the SOS number, foreign affairs number, and other resources in the show notes. I'm Dr. Carly Saposnik Evans. Thank you for listening. I'll be back again next week with another episode of Inside Human Trafficking in Canada. Together, we will get educated to stop exploitation.